This is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. Home for the holidays, that phrase may have a bit of a sting for displaced Maui residents weary of hotel living. The water situation there in affected areas has improved slightly, but the all clear is not for everyone. We hear more about how University of Hawaii scientists have been stepping up to help the community over these many months, filling an information void and providing free tap water testing. And turning to art to process grief, we highlight how members in Kauai's Jewish community are sharing aloha with those in the Middle East. is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. No home for the holidays and trying to make the best of it. We check in with HPR's Maui Nui reporter, Catherine Cluett pactel on how families displaced by the wildfires are coping. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning. Yeah, so you've been uh, out there uh, uh, talking to folks. Uh, how are they feeling? Well, you know, it's it's tough going into the holidays. I checked in with uh, folks, you know, with no agenda, just asking them, you know, what is your life like four months after the fire and, and going into the holidays? And everyone I talked to cited housing uh, still as, as the main concern. Lahaina resident Charles Nahale described a secondary crisis that's happening now after the fire. We have a ongoing second wave of humanitarian disaster now. We still have, you know, about 7,000 people that are still displaced. We haven't had the opportunity to heal because some people have had to move seven, eight, nine times in four months. When you're concerned about the essentials of life, it's hard to begin to allow the body the time it needs, but not just the body, but the, the spirit and the mind to heal from what has happened. You've lost the town. You've lost your home. Some people, multiple homes, multiple family units, and loved ones. Now, that takes time to recuperate from. I was really disappointed early on when the governor decided to open the west side of Maui 60 days after the fire. Yeah, you can hear the the pain in his voice. Absolutely. And he struggled with housing from the moment he escaped from the fire with only his car, as many folks have. He described sleeping in his car, sleeping on chairs. He found someone who, he says, put their arm around him and offered for them to stay with them, even though they had no, uh, you know, no internet, no no infrastructure um, for a couple of days just to have a bed. He did uh, find a condo to stay in in West Maui, he says, uh, for about a month and a half. But he got a knock on the door one day and was told that he was supposed to have checked out two hours ago and never received any notice. So it's just been, you know, this roller coaster for, for folks. 
Courtney Lazo is another fire survivor navigating the housing crisis with her family. She's also one of the organizers of Fishing for Housing. Uh, that's a group of Lahaina residents who have been staked out at Ka'anapali Beach. So, you know, super visible, very popular beach with, with tourists. Uh, they've been there for about a month and a half nonstop. And they say they'll be there as long as it takes to get dignified long-term housing for fire survivors. And it's helped spark awareness. It's helped spark conversation and action uh, by lawmakers that's, that's starting to be seen. So the Maui County Council just passed a bill that uh, offers uh, tax, 100% tax incentives for short-term rental owners who are who will convert their short-term rental units to long-term to help fire survivors. And Governor Green said last week he's prepared to use a hammer on short-term rental owners who don't help voluntarily. And for Charles Nahali, he said that's the first time he felt heard and supported by the governor since the fire when he heard that last week. Housing, uh, fishing for housing folks have been on Ka'anapali Beach for almost a month and a half now. And Courtney Lazo talked about why the movement is important to fire survivors. It does give Lahaina community a lot of hope, you know, because it shows that there's some sort of movement where uh, our government is supporting something that's community-led and with the reopening of tourism and that uncertainty and people having to move around so much and just hearing all the stories and walking through the lobby of like the hotel I'm seeing and seeing people crying and just kind of waiting in the lobby with their bags, wondering where they're going to go. That really prompted us to just take action and just do something here, something that's a little bit more visible. I don't think it's fair that we made it comfortable for our government or even in the tourism industry to make it think it's okay, you know? So I like that we're down here at the beach and it's a constant reminder for everyone that this is a reality that the community is facing and they can't just sweep it under the rug and pretend it doesn't exist. My son had made a comment and he was like, that really sucks to see people here enjoying themselves on vacation. And he's like, and we can't even go home. And said, mom, I just want to go home. And that sucks, you know? How do you explain that to them? There's really no words to justify why people choose to vacation in a place like this. And, and even talking to tourists that come down and stop by our information tent, you know, I really try my best. Not everyone's friendly. Some people are really pissed off that they paid all this money to come to a burnt downtown. Nothing to do. Or they will say things like, why don't you guys just move? Or why are you waiting for handouts from the government? Yeah, tough to hear those stories. It is. And, you know, she, she did say that a lot of folks, uh, visitors who have stopped by, have come away with, you know, a greater respect for why they're there and, and sharing that story, uh, you know, when they go back home and, you know, continuing to raise awareness of what Lahaina residents are going through. But this afternoon at 3 p.m., Lahaina Strong, uh, the organization that's, that's hosting the Fishing for Housing Movement, is hosting a march, and it's the first time two of the state's biggest unions, the ILWU and Local 5, will be standing with fire survivors in a public demonstration. So they'll be walking uh, along the beach together at 3 p.m. And just in general, Lazo says it's it's been draining the past four months. You know, as you can imagine, it's, it's really hard to get uh, into the holiday spirit for everyone not knowing you know, when or if they can unpack their bags or the next time they'll have to move. They um, have been told that they will have housing, uh, current housing through the holidays. So Red Cross has told both Lazo and Nahale that no one will be moving uh, between properties at least until January 5th. So uh, for Lazo, uh, she says 
she found a long-term rental, but they can't move in until rental assistance forms are processed. And just that has been so much harder than she ever imagined. I'm in the process of getting female rental assistance, but that whole process has been really hard to navigate. And I think they lost my application like twice. I've had to fill out the same document multiple times because I go and fill it out and then they can't find it. And I started taking pictures of it just to have proof that I already filled it out. It's just frustrating because you have your personal information, like your social security. And I'm like, okay, if I'm filling this out and turning it into like a physical copy and you lose it and I got to come back and fill it out every single time I come back here because you can't find it. I'm like, what's the point of me filling it out? And where is it going? This is going to be fraud later on down the road. So I still haven't gotten the assistance yet. I'm still in the process of trying to get it sorted out, but they definitely don't make it easy. This is why people don't come here and get help. I'm pretty tech savvy and I'm totally fine, you know, filling out applications and I understand the process. I do with contracts for work, but I can't imagine what it's like for those who aren't or maybe are cocoon or elderly that don't have someone to kind of hold their hand and help them. I'm like, I understand why people give up and they're just like, oh, forget it. Yeah, the frustration over the red tape, I can understand that. Yeah, for sure. She said she's, you know, gone in person to FEMA, to Red Cross, multiple desks, talked to multiple people, and she always gets a different message. So it's like, you know, folks who are are trying to get housing, it's it's just another layer of frustration happening right now. and of course, you know, all just the emotions. I, I know families are visiting uh, their burned homes for, you know, the last time before uh, the cleanup begins, uh, the debris removal. Uh, I think it's still scheduled for next month. She talked about her two teenage sons going and, you know, looking for um, some of their belongings from their room, uh, you know, before it all gets cleaned up. and. and emotions surrounding that so I I know that uh, the holidays will be tough for a lot of people this year and uh, you know there's there's efforts you know gift giveaways and all of those things in in Lahaina for for the Kiki but definitely a a tough season uh, and a tough uh, four months for folks yes absolutely all right well thank you so much Catherine Thank you. We have been talking with HBR reporter Catherine Kluwit-Pactall. You can find more of her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for The Conversation comes from Skog Rasmussen, LLC, designing solutions for community engagement, project strategy, government relations, and grants services. Learn more at skograsmussen.com. HPR's corporate relations team is growing. We're looking for an experienced media sales professional who is community-minded and loves HPR to join our team as a corporate relations associate. If you excel at new business development, enriching existing relationships, and ensuring client satisfaction, we want to hear from you. Apply by December 31st. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org jobs. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply with a mission to provide fresh water to the people of Oahu, committed to conserving and protecting Oahu's water resources since 1929. Boardofwatersupply.com.
Maui Board of Water Supply just recently gave the all-clear for additional neighborhoods that their tap water is safe to drink. But it's approaching five months since the fire crisis contaminated water sources. Today we hear from a University of Hawaii hydrologist living there on the Valley Isle who helped to stand up a community water testing program following the disaster. And that program is still in place. Chris Schuler lives in Maui. He says he recalls how desperate people were for information. You know, it was such a traumatic time for this island. You know, everybody... Everybody that I know, you know, that wasn't directly affected, you know, essentially just stood up to help in any way that they could. And, you know, so being water quality scientists, you know, the, the reasonable thing to do was to, you know, and knowing that problem was to, was to try to do something to, you know, address the issue and, you know, essentially just provide information for our neighbors, you know, for affected communities and, you know, try to fill the information void that kind of existed at that time, you know, during the crisis, essentially. So you become kind of like the, the go-to site to navigate, you know, what people were hearing on the news. I don't know if I would necessarily say I was the go-to place, but, you know, one of the things that we were able to do, we had the time and the space and the facilities to, you know, listen to people and, you know, to try to provide the information that we had available. So Department of Water Supply, Department of Health, you know, they're, they're certainly, you know, the official sources of information. And they, you know, they were jumping on top of it, you know, incredibly fast as well, fixing the system, doing water testing. So, so you know, they certainly have and had that information, but they, you know, they were very busy. So mm-hmm. we, you know, just, just not having that official role allowed us to take more of an outreach role we have the time for it. We have been so fortunate just to have a water resource research center here, whether mm-hmm. it's reaching out to the experts like yourself for things like, you know, Red Hill over here on Oahu or the situation there on Maui, which was developing. And it was kind mm-hmm. of scary because, I mean, you know, granted, you can be without shelter, but, you know, when it comes to water for the folks that maybe that did have homes survive, but then the water was just not safe to use. Yeah, and you know that was that was very acute in Kula, which is where folks returned to their homes really soon after the fires. And there were there were a lot of people, you know, returning back to properties where the water was off, and then suddenly it was on, and then they were using it for a couple of days, and then the do not use advisory came out a little while after that. So I think that really scared people because some people had been using the water, and then they were told, you know, there's potential carcinogens in it, and so that you know that really did provide a situation where you know more information, more trusted, validated information was you know something that was really needed. Well, what are you hearing now that it's been what four months you know since the fires? And I know that some areas have been given the all clear, but what are you hearing from the community at this juncture? I, mean, I think people in the community are, are really appreciative of the work that we're doing. So we're providing all of our services for free, you know, on a by request basis. We've worked really hard, myself and a lot of my collaborators at UH Manoa on Oahu as well, to pull together grant funding in order to be able to support the analysis costs and to support actually community members who we've hired on to actually do the on the ground sampling. So we've got a couple of people based in Lahaina and one person in Kula. And these are, you know, like affected residents who live either in the burn zone or have family members, you know, who lost properties or or whatnot. So, you know, being able to put together the funds to support that, you know, I think has been received well. And then, you know, right now, even though in Kula, the do not use advisories have been lifted, we are still sampling there and people, you know, really seem to appreciate just kind of having this 
you know, sort of third party scientific unbiased opinion on their water quality, you know, even though it, it is meeting the regulatory standards, the Department of Water Supply is, you know, doing their tests and they're doing those, you know, EPA compliant methods and everything. Just having that second opinion and, you know, having that voice coming from, you know, what, what I hope is a trusted source in the university. You know, I, I think that's a, a, a useful place that we can take in the community. And then you've been hosting this website where people can actually see all the, the data on a regular basis. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And and that was one of the first things that we put up. You know, really, this kind of all started with like lots of people emailing and calling and asking questions about, you know, what does this mean? What's going on with the water? And in the very beginning, we didn't have test results because it took us a while to spin up our sampling. The county didn't have test results because, it you know, it takes time to get those tests done. So there wasn't the, you know, actual test data, you know, that was needed to understand if the water systems had been contaminated. But, you know, just like information and answering frequently asked questions seemed like it was a really big need. So we actually spun up a website pretty quickly, and that's based on our hawaii.edu water resources research center URL. So that's just a, a subpage of our site. You can pretty easily navigate to it if you search Maui Fires Drinking Water Information Hub. It's one of the first things that comes up. And we started there with FAQs, updates, you know, just links, information about drinking water. And as we've gotten more information and data, we've put up more resources. That's where people can actually go and request samples. They can fill out basically a Google form, and then that puts them on our list to go to their their place and sample their water. And then the data that we produce, we've put it up in a couple different formats. They can view it, I know, sample by sample, or they can view it on an interactive map as well. What can you share with us, you know, about the recent rains and water quality in general? Well, well, there's a couple different sides to the coin there. So, you know, I'm working with a number of researchers, and I think, you know, Andrea Kealoha, who, who you'll be talking with later, she's really been leading an effort regarding environmental water quality and coastal water quality. So, you know, those, these runoff events, you know, which can potentially wash contaminants into the ocean or waterways are a huge concern. That is some of the work that I do. I, I wear that hat sometimes. With this drinking water sampling project, we're actually just very thankful that we've gotten some rain. The last couple months have been very dry. And so, you know, on top of residents dealing with the do not use water advisory here in upcountry, we're in a stage two water shortage. And that's just because Honestly, the system isn't very resilient when the streams, when there's not a lot of rain, the streams dry up, and then there's just not water to fill the reservoirs. So the fact that we've been getting rains is actually filling the reservoirs, which is, you know, allowing us, I don't know if we're off the water shortage officially, but, you know, putting more water into the system. And honestly, in terms of the, the water quality, the more water that the department can flush through the system, the more water they have, the less likely they are to have, you know, any of these volatile compounds in the water. So rains are actually a good thing for the drinking water system, although, you know, they can cause runoff in the environmental sense. But essentially that rainwater will do what it's supposed to do and that's recharge aquifers or water system? Yeah. And you know, specifically for upcountry Kula, that water it comes from East Maui, you know, so it comes from all the way out towards Nihiku through the ditches. So that area was obviously not affected by the fire. So it's not like there's water sources that are being affected by the fires. In Lahaina the water comes from up the hill in Cahoma Valley. So, you know, again, that water source is above the fires and was not affected, to my knowledge. Okay. All right. But still, you're there. If folks are uneasy about water quality, you folks will go out and do the testing for free. 
Yep. And then what can you say about our ability to get the results from these tests? Because that was an issue here on Oahu, right, with Red Hill, waiting for so long to get sampling back and the test results in. Absolutely. And you mentioned Red Hill. I have to put a shout out to my collaborators who worked on community tap water sampling over there and who are still actually working on that two years later. They're still taking samples from community members. They really put together the template for what we're doing. You know, So that's one of the reasons we were able to put this program together so fast on Maui. Yeah, in terms of the data availability, that website that I mentioned, our drinking water information hub, that has all of our sample data on it. So that's all available, accessible. And I've actually have some undergraduate data science students working on summarizing it and making it into you know better visualization so that people can access that more easily. We also have links on that website to the county's information viewer where they have a map and people can see the water quality results that they've been sending off to Eurofins, which is a private lab, or the Department of Health lab. So we're trying to put all of that drinking water quality data in one place on our website. And our website is also connected into another project, which is a Maui fires information hub that some of my collaborators are building, which is intended to consolidate not only just our drinking water data, which is you know one, one little component, but also all of the environmental data that is being collected about water quality in the ocean and water quality in streams and fire, ash, contamination, and air quality, sort of everything related to the fires. So that's that's another effort that I'm involved with as well. Okay, just trying to aggregate everything together because we're getting yeah. good science collected, whether it's from the sail drones, you know, that we just featured to the folks that are out there sampling in the nearshore waters. Yeah, exactly. And, and that hub, that Maui fires information hub, that's still in progress. So I don't think that... Uh, publicly available yet. Anything else you think would be important to underscore just about the work that you're doing out there with the water? You know, one of the sources of funding that I got was an NSF, National Science Foundation, Rapid Award, which is given out to collect perishable data in events like this. My award, I think, is one of maybe nine or 10 that were awarded to Rapids that were awarded by NSF to UH Manoa to do all kinds of different things, you know, things all the way from predicting fire weather behavior to, you know, underground water contamination. So there's a lot of these different research groups doing different things. And, you know, one other one that I might kind of highlight here, too, we've been working on a program prior to the fires to put up 100 weather stations across Hawaii. These are climate monitoring stations. And we actually did get an NSF rapid award to put up another one of those in Lahaina and make that a, a smart sensor that's able to detect heat signatures, essentially, with uh, AI-enabled cameras. So, you know, kind of early warning fire detection. Mm. It detects air quality, particulate matter, things like that. So, yeah, there's, you know, there's just a whole bunch of other really interesting projects that we're doing at UH Manoa that I'm involved with. A lot of them in response to these fires, but a lot of them also you know, just to kind of collect that environmental data that then can be useful when events like this happen or for longer range planning too. Lots of work underway now. That was University of Hawaii hydrologist Chris Schuler with the Water Resource Center talking with us about how uh, the program continues to offer free water testing for residents of Kula and Lahaina who are concerned about their water quality. Look for links for more information on the conversation page of our website later today.
This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Kahuku High School won its third consecutive state football title last month. It's their 11th overall since the statewide tournament was instituted in 1999. The only Hawaii high school football team that has more is St. Louis School. The private academy won seven state championships since 1999, in addition to winning 14 Oahu Prep Bowls between 1973 and 1998. You might remember the bygone Prep Bowl. It was initially played at Honolulu Stadium before that was torn down and then moved to the now-defunct Aloha Stadium. The winner was widely recognized as Hawaii State football champion, despite the fact that the game never included teams from the neighbor islands. Many of the Prep Bowls are the stuff of legends. Ask anyone from that era and they'll gladly recount their favorite game, including the one that ended in a tie. For today's Backyard Quiz, do you know the names of the two high school teams that played to a 7-7 deadlock back in 1980? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as women in need on Kauai. NareedHawaii.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marsh Cafe, we'll catch up with a couple of local companies to learn how they're helping climate and environmental mitigation. We'll hear from Maui Nui Venison and Hohonu to learn how they're addressing climate resilience. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash MauiStrong. It's beginning to sound like New Year's. Yep, maybe you've got those annoying neighbors down the street setting off illegal fireworks at all times of the day and night. That is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Ben Angrone is on the line today. Mahalo. Good morning. Morning. How are you, Catherine? I am good. Glad you could join us. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I know that the mayor had a big news conference yesterday, late yesterday. Yes, yes. The mayor had a press conference in late afternoon yesterday, basically talking about uh, the fireworks that we all know are incoming with the new year approaching quickly. 
uh, the big topic was that, uh, you know, enforcement from the city side can be very difficult, I think, as all of us are aware. You know, you might have a neighbor down the street who's lighting up fireworks and seemingly HPD is never really there to catch them in the act and issue uh, charges or anything. And so the mayor's big message yesterday was really like, please regulate yourselves in some sort of way. Aerial fireworks are illegal in Honolulu, um, but the mayor and his uh, some of his department heads, including from uh, the fire department and the police department and the emergency services department were saying, you know, we know this is a sort of dangerous time of year where people are going to be playing around a lot with these pyrotechnic explosive devices. So we really ask everybody to please do your part and um, be as safe as you possibly can because we can't be everywhere at once. Yeah, and I know that they did remind everybody, you know, be respectful, you know, look what happened with the wildfires in Maui. Uh, and you don't want to, you know, burn anybody's house down. This is not a good thing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. This even came up last week uh, for a different topic with um, the mayor and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers uh, had a community meeting about their billion-dollar sort of Alawai flood plan. And the big message was back then, last week, was the same message that the mayor said last night, actually, where he said, you know, Everybody was shocked by the tragedy on Maui, um, and that kind of thing is, we're not immune to that level of disaster here. Uh, You know, we need to be doing things to be proactive and not have, for example, a stray firework land on somebody's house and cause a huge disaster. And he he pointed out that uh, even though it's been raining a lot, which is pretty welcome for the, you know, the greenery, love seeing Diamond Head light up all green, um, but he he pointed out that the Mililani Malka fire from last month or so uh, was in a relatively green area. So these things can still happen. Uh, accidents, even if it's less than a fire, you know, somebody loses a finger or somebody else loses a finger who wasn't even nearby. But yeah. Well, I did have a, a neighbor's house. Uh, you know, they weren't home at the time, but a, a stray firework from someone up above on my ridge landed on their roof and we had to you know, take out our hoses to hose it down. So it is scary. And then, you know, every year someone is injured or, or we've had people die recently as well uh, because of fireworks, um, you know, an errant uh, or, or just defective um, shot, you know, and, and uh, that's not good either. No, no, no. And, uh, and it's difficult, um, you know, enforcement-wise. It's, I mean, at least what the city says is, you know, uh, Civil Beat, we did a story, our, one of our editors, John Hill, did an analysis back in March, and he looked at five years of data from the past five years, and he found that 94% of fireworks citations don't actually result in charges being filed. And uh, last night at the press conference, Police Chief Joe Logan mentioned, uh, it was asked, you know, how many arrests have there been this year so far? And he said, out of 137 calls received or so, Uh, Only one arrest has actually been made. And this is, you know, what the police department says is this is just a difficult thing to enforce because, uh, you know, the evidence for proving that somebody shot off a firework, it just explodes in the sky. Uh, So the city says, you know, there's not a ton that we can do. There are some cities like Salt Lake City that have put in alternatives to fireworks shows. Salt Lake City, starting this past 4th of July, started a sort of drone formation kind of show that's quiet um and uh yeah so so honolulu uh, said they are not doing the same thing yeah so a light show 
um, without the noise. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, if I had my druthers and if I had a drone, I would put it up to get some evidence against neighbors in the area. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll uh, see what happens. Yeah, this yeah. holiday. But stay safe. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Catherine. Have All a right. good one. And that was reporter Ben Engerman with today's Reality Check. You can read his story online at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors installing Daikin products, that's D-A-I-K-I-N, at CostcoHawaii.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Dwayne Elgin, author of Choosing Earth. And next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about our collective journey to break down to a mature planetary community. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from Nohea Gallery at Kahala Mall, featuring handcrafted jewelry, art, local woodwork, and gifts for entertaining from Hawaii artists. NoheaGallery.com. Talks are taking place in Egypt today between Hamas and Israeli leaders to secure the release of at least some of the estimated 129 Israeli captives held in Gaza. Here in Hawaii, many in the Kauai community have come together to show their support for Israeli refugees impacted by the war. The Kauai Jewish Center recently sent a care package of Hawaiian-themed jewelry to the refugees taking shelter in Jerusalem's Olive Tree Hotel. The Conversations Russell Subiono talked to the center's rabbi, Mikhail Goldman, this morning about the symbolic gift and his thoughts on the conflict in Gaza. Whose idea was it to send the jewelry to the Israeli refugees? It was actually a member of our community. His name is Adam Sugarman. He's a screenwriter. He's a, himself an artist, you could say. He suggested this idea because a lot of people wanted to do something but they didn't know what to do. Like, okay, you can make a donation, you can send some money. What if you don't have money? You know, I mean, people were torn because they wanted to do something and from so far away, you know, what can you do? And what can you do that's unique, different? And also, there's also a lot of different opinions and, and how to, you know, what to support. And so he thought of doing something that was, so to speak, humanitarian, that would be just be like a human touch that wouldn't get involved in, whether you're, you know, supporting the war, so to speak, in the sense of sending ammunition or supplying bulletproof vests, or you know, there's all kinds of fundraisers going on for, for all kinds of supplies. But he thought this would bring the community together in a way that would allow people who otherwise wouldn't come together to come together. And it did. It, it, it really hit the spot, and it brought the community together in a way that was unique. 
approximately how many pieces were made and, and sent out? I think it was just over 200 pieces. Wow. And people were very generous. They bought some of the collections that they had collected, like, you know, shells of the beach and little gems and stuff like that. And there was a lady, Sandy O'Shaughnessy, who really led it because she does this and she's got experience with it. So she brought a lot of her supplies and led, led everybody in how to do it. And Adam himself, who had the idea, bought some of his supplies. People bought their own little supplies, but she was the main lead. And yeah, my wife coordinated mostly the coming together and doing it. And people who had never come to anything in our community came. Jewish people who had never participated and even non-Jewish people came. It was a very unifying event. Was there a significance to the design? It was like Hawaii themed, which basically was like shells from the beaches in Hawaii. And it wasn't like expensive jewelry in a cell you buy in the store. You know, it was like a handmade kind of jewelry you buy at maybe the artisans fairs and, you know, those kind of things. But each one was very nicely packaged in a nice little mesh bag. And each one had a little note inside it saying, you know, with love from the community in Kauai. So that every individual who got it got their own little note inside it. And it was just very tastefully done. It was really beautiful. It was like, you know, uh, aloha gift to people out there that had lost their homes and were displaced. What was the path these gifts took to get to the recipient's was it put into the mail and shipped somehow, or was it taken there by hand? No, no. First of all, we wouldn't do the mail, even if it was reliable <laughs> to get from here to Israel. We still wouldn't do it because we wanted a human touch, and we wanted it to be hand-delivered. We were intent on sending it with an actual traveler who can make the connection in person. And this is where we saw, like, the hand of God, so to speak. You know, like, we saw the divine synchronicity in the way it came together. I was going to New York for a conference about a week after they do this jewelry thing. So we took it with us. Interestingly enough, a rabbi in Jerusalem that I was trying to connect with for a long time, he reached out to me saying, one of my disciples is actually going to be in New York for a week, and he's coming back to Jerusalem. And then this fellow who is an American guy from New York who just sort of moved to Israel, I think a year or two ago, was coming to visit his family back in New York. And I met up with him for the purposes originally of giving him this, this sacred gift for this rabbi in Jerusalem. And then I said to him, I don't know if it'll work for you or not, but we have this uh, gift of jewelry. And he said, sure, I'd love to take that as well, you know, back to Jerusalem and, and find the appropriate people to hand it over to there. Long story short, you know, he took it in his luggage to Israel. And then we were looking for somebody in Jerusalem to distribute it to the refugees. So there's a family from Kauai that recently migrated to Israel and they live in Jerusalem. Um, just literally a half a year ago, they sold a condo in Lahui to make a deliberate choice of moving to Israel. This is before the war broke out. Can you imagine? They moved from Kauai to Jerusalem. Most people here can't fathom that kind of like a choice because it's like, first of all, they moved to Hawaii. Right. Yeah, they gave up to Hawaii. And they moved to Jerusalem, and we kept in touch with them. They're very close to our community. His name is Yossi Solov. Her name is Rina Gordon. They have a son, Zachary. So we had this guy, Aaron, who transported across the Atlantic Ocean to Israel, we had a meet up with them, and they were only too happy to be the last link in the chain to bring the gift from the Kauai community to the people in Israel. And they went to the hotel, it's called the Olive Tree Hotel, which is in Jerusalem where the refugees from Sederot. Sederot is a community really right next to Gaza. It's one of the closest communities within a mile of Gaza, and one of the most bombarded cities in Israel. For years, they've been getting rockets very frequently. 
and a lot of that community was being relocated to that hotel. And Yossi and Rina from Kauai, you know, went and handed it out to the people. So it was really beautiful that we didn't know when we started the project that we would have, so to speak, Ohana on the other side mm-hmm. to distribute it. Very amazing. Just the serendipity of it starting in Kauai and kind of being delivered in the hands of people from Kauai. What an amazing story. One thing I did want to kind of touch on before we wrap, I'd want to back out, you know, a little bit and kind of look at the situation as a whole. When you think about the Israeli refugees that receive these gifts and you think about why they're there and the situation that's currently going on there, do you have any thoughts on what the sentiment is for Israel and and how they feel about where the current state of the war is? It's a hard, you know, it's a hard situation. We're all torn and pained by what's going on, obviously, and we all mourn, you know, the loss of life and all human life is is precious and it's a difficult situation, but the people in this community, particularly who got our gifts, the people of Sederot, as one example, they've been bombarded with tens of thousands of rockets, not just in the last two months, but in the last 15 years. You know, this is not an, unfortunately a new thing for them. And it's like, it's reached a point where it's just not sustainable to live, you know, where your kids in kindergarten have to run for bomb shelters, you know, and you have 10 seconds when the siren goes off, pull the bomb shelter, till some shrapnel is going to land in your schoolyard and stuff like that. It's just, it's, it's such a crazy way of living. Actually, at the conference I was in in New York, they had a kid from the Sederot community who came on stage at the conference in his bulletproof vest and his helmet that he wears, you know, walking around town. It's like ridiculous to have kids raised in that environment. Look, it reached a boiling point where the status quo couldn't, couldn't remain any longer. And I think most of the people in the in the sane world agree that Hamas has not just got to go because of the Israeli civilians and living under fire endlessly, but even the Palestinians, those of them that want peace, are being held hostage by their own Hamas leadership who just want this endless war and want to just murder more and more civilians to get their way. So it's come to a point where... Hamas's charter is eliminating Israel. If you read their charter, it's very clear. They've reiterated their sentiment that they want to do this all over again. They said October 7th was a practice run. They said it's on public television and radio. They're clear about the fact that genocide of the Jewish people is their mission. They want to get us from the river to the sea, which means out of that land into the ocean. They're not interested in a two-state solution. So we're either going to die or we're going to fight for our life. And we're not interested in dying. <laughs> so... I think that everybody in Israel, even people that were trying to find peaceful solutions of coexistence, once Hamas took over that whole territory and dominated it and kind of even took their own people hostage. So it became a situation where the Gaza became so infested with a mindset of terrorism that it just can't continue like this because Israel can't live under fire constantly of of literally a, a mortal threat to their communities, their civilians. Hamas is intent on doing this over and over again. So Israel is left with no choice but to eliminate Hamas. And unfortunately, you know, there are civilian tragedies. Nobody on our side, on the Jewish side, wants civilian tragedies. We've done the utmost to try and avoid it. But this is just, you know, it's not... Most people in Israel, I think everybody agrees that it's, you know, Hamas has got to go. And what's going to happen afterwards, you know, remains to be seen. 
but it's, this is a terror organization that's that's literally genocidal and wants to kill all the Jews in Israel. And the fact that, they, that they've been allowed to to grow to where they are and have such ammunition and such support that that alone is is mind-boggling. I think that you know the sentiment of all civilized human beings is that nobody wants to see civilian loss. We're trying to minimize as much as possible. But when you have a people that's holding their own people hostages, you know, Israel tried to create a human corridor, a humanitarian corridor for people to escape. And there was a time that the Hamas wasn't even letting people escape because they want to show more civilian casualties because it's better for their PR and it makes Israel look worse. Israel is being blamed for like this genocide. You've seen that in, in some of the media. But I mean, Israel, they removed 8,000 Jews from Gaza to give that land to the Palestinians about 20 some years ago. So they clearly were trying to offer them a, a way to live, not a way to die, and, and give them an opportunity to make a you know a space for themselves, which unfortunately became just one big safe haven for terrorism. So I don't know what's going to be afterwards, but Hamas is just got to go. The minute Hamas surrenders, the war is over. One of the prime ministers of Israel once said a very powerful and painful truth. He said, the minute our enemies put down their weapons, there will be peace. The minute we put our weapons down, there'll be no Israel. In other words, Israel's proven to the world over and over again that they really want to live in peace. They've proven that. They're not looking for war. They're not looking for bad PR of killing civilians in Gaza. You know there's over 2 million Muslims, Arabs living in Israel with citizenship and full rights and medical benefits and scholarships, university and every right. 2 million Arabs live in Israel in peace. So Israel's proven that they actually want peace. Hamas has proven that they want war because every single ceasefire that's happened, they've broken. Every single, the last, I think, 17 ceasefires were broken by Hamas. They don't really want a ceasefire. Ceasefire for them means time to regroup, time to rearm, to smuggle in some more arms through humanitarian aid, and then go for another round. So the Western world that's, that's forcing Israel for a ceasefire is basically saying, let's keep Hamas in power. I don't want to end on a down note because the story really is this act of kindness and this act of love that your organization has done for the refugees. And so I kind of just want to see if if there are future plans to continue this this outpouring of love and and support for Israeli refugees. Um, We don't have like our next step right now in terms of uh, from Hawaii. I don't think we have a specific, you know, gift idea. But I'm sure we'll do more as, as, as the need arises. Right now, I feel like a lot of our need is, like our personal immediate need is, is making sure we're safe uh, here. There's a lot of anti-Semitism that's risen in Hawaii, unfortunately, and we're continuously counseling people here. And we also have friends and family in Israel. There's, there's actually folks from Hawaii that went to um, the front lines to protect our country. On the humanitarian level, there are many, many organizations that are helping people that are really lost everything. And, you know, if somebody wants to, to get in touch with them directly, I can make a connection. Yeah, but at this current moment, we don't have like a, another gift idea, but I'm sure something will come up. Rabbi, thank you so much for your time thank this you very morning. Much. I appreciate it. And that was the Kauai Jewish Center's uh, Rabbi Mikhail Goldman talking with HPR's Russell Sobiono. This is the first of three stories we'll be airing the rest of the week, showing different sides of the Israel-Hamas conflict. Tomorrow we'll hear from a Tongan artist, a muralist who spent time in the West Bank painting murals there.
And on Friday, uh, we plan to hear from Maya Satoro, who was with the Spark Matsunaga Peace Institute at the University of Hawaii. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. And before winter ends, try your hand at spotting a kiwaea. These long-billed shorebirds spend their winters here. They're not too common on the main Hawaiian islands, so we have their call for you thanks to the Makole Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart with your Manu Minute. The Kiowea, or bristle-thighed curlew, is a medium-sized shorebird with a wingspan of almost 36 inches, a long, downwardly curved bill, and long, grayish legs. They're mostly mottled brown and get their English name from the very noticeable bristle-like feathers at the base of their thighs. With a total population size of about 7,000 birds, Kiowea breed in the summer in Alaska and make the long, non-stop flight back to Hawaii and other islands in the South Pacific every August to escape the Alaska winter. Adults generally fly back to Alaska to breed in early May, but once the juveniles arrive for their first winter in Hawaii, they stay for two or three years because they don't breed until they get older. This makes it possible to see them year-round in Hawaii primarily in typical shorebird habitats, like wetlands, shorelines, and grassy areas. If you see a bird near the shore with a really long, downward curved bill, with a call that's been described as sounding like whistles of an adoring pursuer, you're probably looking at a kiowea. The word kiowea means to stand high, as on long legs and they were important in early Hawaii as they were one of the few birds mentioned in the Kumulipo, or Hawaiian creation chant. Kiowea are the only known shorebird to actively use tools for foraging. They've been observed grabbing pieces of coral in their bills and rearing their head back in a big arc to forcefully toss the coral at seabird eggs to break the shell so they can feed on the contents. While kiowea love eggs, they also feed on crustaceans, small fish, and insects. Kiowea are the only shorebird that can't fly for a period of time when they're molting new feathers in Hawaii, making them susceptible to predators. This is likely one reason why they are much more common in the predator-free northwestern Hawaiian islands, like Midway and Laysan. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, committed to helping preserve, protect, and restore the biological diversity of Hawaii Island. Friendsofhakalauforest.org.
And now it is time to prep the answer to today's backyard quiz. Earlier we asked you if you knew the two Hawaii high school football teams that played to a 7-7 tie in the 1980 Oahu Prep Bowl. The answer, Iwalani and Waianae High School. Over 31,000 people packed the Loho Stadium to watch a Waianae team featuring the Offensive Player of the Year vie for the unofficial state crown against an Iolani squad led by the Defensive Player of the Year. The Red Raiders scored first on a touchdown pass followed by the Sea Riders tying the game seconds before halftime. Uh, here's a clip of Jim Leahy, a sportscaster who we lost earlier this year, calling the final seconds of the game. Iolani has the ball. Eight seconds remaining. Right throws to a pow up the far sideline. It's out of bounds. No good. Two seconds left. Apau with a desperation wingback pass. It is overthrown and the 1980 Prep Bowl ends in a 7-7 tie. And oh, boy do we miss him on the air. That is today's quiz. We had no winners but if you have an idea for a quiz you'd like to share, write to TalkBack at HawaiiPublicRadio.org. Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow, we plan to hear from Governor Josh Green. Got something on your mind you want to ask? Leave your question on our TalkBack line, 808-792-8217, or email TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find our archive shows online on our website, or check out your favorite podcast store. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.